This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. We are hunters, anglers, riders, and sometimes chefs. Our passion for the outdoor lifestyle motivated the foundation of Harvesting Nature, which serves as a media outlet built to inspire and educate the outdoor expert and novice alike. Our podcast focuses on the technical side of cooking wild fish and game, while also incorporating adventures and lessons learned from our pursuit of wild meat. Join us on our journey of harvesting nature. Hey everyone, welcome to uh, Harvest in Nature Wild Fishing Game Podcast. You got uh, Justin Townsend here, and uh, we're running with another special guest uh, today to open up the second episode of our second season now. And uh, today's got a really special treat. Uh, John's joining us, and uh, I'll let him introduce himself. Hey everybody, John Wallace, uh, better known as Wild Game Cook on uh, social media, based out of Ohio. Happy to be on. Hey everybody, this is Colin returning again. Glad to be here. Nice to meet you, John. And uh, today we got a cool range of topics. We're gonna try to get through them all. Um, you know how it ends up with us, though. We we get down some rabbit holes sometimes, but that's okay because we all walk away better for it. Uh, yeah. So I guess to start off with, so John and I uh, kind of been friends for a couple years now. Uh, what we did our first podcast together what gosh five, been six seven years ago yeah five or six years ago i bet yeah i was still uh i was on the west coast it was before i i came down to key west um before i got in the coast guard actually so uh it's it's been a long time and it's funny we had uh we had randy on the podcast back last month so uh got to reconnect with him too so it's it's pretty good very cool I told him we'll have to get like a little rotation going, so we're gonna all just just chat. We'll just reminisce and uh, maybe do a like a uh, uh, what do you call it uh, a, a reunion tour. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, throwing it back. So, 
so John, I guess uh, let's start off. If you tell tell us and the listeners a little bit about yourself, so uh, they understand who they're listening to and and where you're coming from. Sure. So, um, grew up kind of in an outdoors family, uh, born and raised in Ohio, and um, started processing my own deer back in like 2012. So I'd been hunting deer for a while and um, just decided I didn't want to. Uh, take my deer to the processors anymore, mainly mainly due to cost. So just kind of jumped into doing my own wild game processing, which led into a bunch of new cooking explorations, which I found is a pretty big passion and hobby of mine. Um, Moved out to Missouri in 2013 and was sitting in the deer woods on a slow day and decided to look up this Instagram thing and see what it was all about and um, (laughs) started a wild game cooking page and people seem to respond to it. And, uh, I really enjoy cooking and, uh, Instagram allows you to, uh, you know, if people want to see food posts, they can follow you. And, uh, so it, it kind of took off from there. Um, I hunt a little bit of everything. If it's in season, um, I'm probably going after it in one fashion or another. I am kind of cultured or uh, sheltered in a way that I don't travel out of state much to hunt. So I typically either have hunted in Ohio or Missouri. Um, got two boys, um, 11 and 10, who I really enjoy getting outdoors. Uh, They're becoming quite the avid fishermen. And uh, I I expect this fall, we're going to be down on a lot of squirrels and probably get their first rabbits under their belt. Um, Got a little girl who's six, um, wife of 14 years. We all were able to move back home to Ohio last year. And uh, Ohio doesn't offer the outdoor recreation that Missouri did for the last six years. So I'm still coping with that. But um, looking forward to hopefully getting back to Missouri uh, this fall. So um, that's about it. Just kind of your average everyday hunter and, you know, home cook who just likes to eat good food. And I try to share tips and tricks when I can. Yeah, and I think you do a really good job of it. And, you know, through through the growth I've seen in your own Instagram channel and, and the, the photographs and quality of food and all that, uh, I think a lot of lessons learned and a lot of good food as a result um i know i i definitely like browsing through your your uh, page <laughs> yeah yeah i was so. looking at it and my mouth was watering man some of that stuff <laughs> <amazing>. <laughs> yeah a lot of it started too you know I, I was just tired of eating the same wild game dishes you know and um you know we a lot of tacos at the house which we were eating before and i still love tacos um i oh, love man. about yep. anything wrapped i love about anything wrapped in bacon um but it was just you know, I was looking for more diverse recipes and I stumbled onto, you know, Hank Shaw and I stumbled onto Steve Ranella and some others. And I just got out of my comfort zone. I still have a pretty small comfort zone. I think if I posted how often I eat tacos, I'd probably lose a lot of followers because we eat them a lot, but <laughs> you know, but it's nice to try new stuff. And that's what I try to do is just let them know that they can try other things than poppers or whatever, you know, meatloaf. Yeah. I, I think we live, uh, we definitely live by that mantra at my house too. Um, you know, a lot of my wild game cooking translates into writing for one publication or the other at some point. So it often end up, uh, cooking completely different meals every time, which is sometimes good. And sometimes you're like, man, I, I just, I think I want to enjoy a classic today. So, uh, it's good, but tacos, Man, I am such a taco fan. Oh yeah, I think yeah. Uh, I think 
we eat tacos of some sort at least once or twice a week. So, uh, that's not public knowledge for, for, for me either. But, um, so I guess getting into the, uh, into the cooking world here a little bit, what, what primarily is one of your top favorites as far as eating? Um, as far as specific species of game, um, I've had it a few times and it, it's definitely one of my favorites is elk meat. Um, I had a, a, when I was living in Missouri, I would have friends who would travel to Colorado and uh, they would swing by and, you know, I've got pretty good friends. So they would drop off a few different cuts of different varieties. And I got my palate, uh, you know, riched with elk meat. And I was able to go out to Colorado a couple falls ago and uh, help my uncle harvest his first bull elk. And we ended up packing it out together and we split the meat down the middle. So I had like a hundred pounds of elk meat last me a, a couple of seasons. So that probably ranks up there. Wild turkeys up there too. Um, you know, pretty good stuff right there. What, what do you think it is about the elk that, that most draws you to it? Um, well, like I said, there's a richness to it compared to whitetail. I guess it's worth noting that, um, my page is a lot of venison and I don't ever often clarify, but it is whitetail. So I'm a whitetail hunter. Um, I don't get into muleys much. I don't get into elk, uh, over this route, but, um, it just has a richness to it that whitetail doesn't have. And, uh, one of the cuts he left me was the tenderloin, which was so large compared to a whitetail. Oh, it was, it's, it's the wow. best cut of meat I've ever eaten. I mean, it was just a yeah. piece of the elk tenderloin, right? So it was probably the size of a full on whitetail tenderloin. And it was probably only a third of one of the tenderloins, you know, so it was probably center cut tenderloin. It was so good. Um, you could scroll back. It's on there. I spent, wow. I remember it was one of the first times <laughs> I spent money on a lot of ingredients, which I typically don't do if I can help it, but I spent like $20 just on the sauce for this thing. It was like a red wine mushroom sauce that I had made. Oh. And I spent like 20 bucks just on the, the sauce itself. That's right. awesome. So, worth it. I definitely, um, calling it, you've had elk before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, yeah, you had some uh, recently, I remember. Um, just trying to think, like, to me, elk's probably one of the leanest meats out there. Like, almost zero fat, but it's amazing how tender and, like, just the quality of the meat overall. Because usually you think about uh, meat that's lean, and if you don't cook it, there's not a lot of forgiveness in that. And I think yeah. elk's kind of that exception to the rule in a lot of cases. Yeah, I had right. made a, uh, a Mississippi roast with um, an elk round that I had from my cousin. Um, and he's the one who showed me the recipe too. And yeah, I mean, the flavors broke down really well. I was surprised at how tender the meat was, even though it was still incredibly lean. But, um, so what, what, uh, what did you do for the Mississippi roast? Uh, I mean, it, it's pretty much a slow cooker recipe. Um, pretty hard to mess up, but, uh, I put the elk round in the slow cooker, well, uh, browned it first and seared it. And then put it in the slow cooker and then just dump some butter and some ranch dressing in there, surrounded by pepperoncinis, and then uh, cook it for eight hours on low. And, I mean, it's fantastic. I mean, it's it's pretty buttery. It's pretty fatty and everything with the ranch and the butter. But the uh, pepperoncinis give it a really distinct extra flavor, and that gets absorbed into the meat also. Uh, but that, along with the elk meat, is just fantastic. So it's a great combination. That is probably the the best recipe that nobody knows about that's so yeah, like, it, it's the hottest yeah. <laughs> it's the hottest upcoming recipe 
Uh, you see it on different forms. Hey, what do I do with this deer roast? Oh, yeah. And they say Google Mississippi pot roast. And I've had it. Yeah. Um, I had it kind of before it took on that name, but it's super easy and it's very flavorful. Um, so it's great for oh, like yeah. new wild game eaters. It's great for people who mm -hmm. are always eating wild game because it's something different. Uh, but that's definitely one to do. Wild game eater. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I had it when I had it in Colorado at my cousin's house. Uh, he had made it with a uh, heel roast. And I guess he was asking his butcher, he was like, what, what do you even do with this? And that he was the one who recommended it to my cousin. He was like, well, it's, it's a pretty easy recipe to break down. Um, it's not a very common cut. You know, nobody really goes to the store and orders a heel roast, but it's part of the animal and it's unavailable. So, uh, that's what he did with it. But yeah, it turned out excellent. I'll definitely make it again. For sure. I can see that too. You could, you could probably do even, uh, like a venison neck. If you did a, a whole neck, you could probably do it in the same method and it would break down very similar. I would think, um, that's another cut. I think people are very uncomfortable to get creative with just, and a lot of times it ends up in the ground meat pile, which I think is unfortunate because the neck's got some good qualities. It's got great yeah. flavor. Uh, it's got a depth of flavor that some of the other cuts don't have. Um, I've sous vide it once and then put a nice sear to it. And I called it like a, a poor man's flank state or skirk state. I guess it would be like a skirt state for fajitas. Um, but it just broke down so nice. And um, I don't make it as, I don't sous vide it as often as I, or I don't cook it as often as I should. And that's mainly because over the last year or two, I've gotten into a lot more cased meats, sausages and such. So mm -hmm. I kind of get in this honeymoon phase of what I'm into at that time. Um, and that's why it's nice to go back to something you tried and it worked out. It's like, all right. So sometimes on my freezer wrap or whatever, I'll write the recipe that I intend to use that cut for. It doesn't always happen, but it, it when I'm looking at it, I have to make the decision. Am I going to stick with my plan or do I go with whatever it is I'm, I'm needing a cut of meat for? Yeah, that's, that's the, keep that's yourself a, honest. <laughs> yeah. That's the first time I've heard that though. Uh, writing the, the recipe on there, like as you're storing it. That's a pretty good idea. Yeah, so it, it's a way for me to get out of my comfort zone. If I don't put the vision to paper, I'm just going to end up doing the same thing we always do. Or maybe my wife will go out there and she'll grab a piece to do whatever it is we normally do. And um, so there's certain cuts that I, I, I either try to do corned beef or, corn, or in this case corned venison or venison pastrami, which I've yet to make. Um, and so if I don't write it down, it just it's not as likely to happen. So that's just like a little pro tip there, I guess, if you're really wanting to force yourself to try new things. If you know a cut would be great for a specific recipe, whether it's corn venison or venison pastrami or that neck roast, you know, write it on the, on the freezer paper and it'll be a nice reminder for you when you're looking through all your cuts. Yeah. And yeah, I, I definitely agree. Cause I'm, I'm guilty of it. You know, you get the animal and the drive back home. And especially like I hunt, I hunt a lot out of state or like in states, a little bit of a drive for us to get up there. And, and so I spend a lot of time post hunting, thinking about what I'm going to do with the meat. And it's usually that immediate after, before it gets back to the house and gets uh, prepped and stored. And so it's a new, it's a new tactic. I think, I think I, I really like, so, um, cause I'll do the same just like you. I'm like, ah, oh, what do I need to cook this week? Oh, you know, I need to make tacos, so I'll pull that meat out, and there we go. Yeah. <laughs> but um, so talking about storing too, so we have a uh, Corey's actually come up with it. Um, his little storing method as far as like organizing different types of cuts and games, and I think this will play in well. So Corey, who's our our managing editor for the for the website, he 
we put out an article back. It was a couple of years ago where he broke down his storage method and he goes like full into it. He's got a whiteboard. He's got things organized. He's got, he takes those, uh, you know, we go to the grocery store and you get those cloth bags and they, you know, you get them reusable ones. He takes those and he'll organize it either by cut or by animal inside. So you pull one out and it's all a specific cut or all a specific species. And then, that way you don't have to go digging around. You got ground meat falling into your steaks and, and all the different stuff. But, uh, I think you could even take it a step further in the organization and incorporate that, that recipe provisioning, uh, in a way. And I think it would work really well as we get deep down into the depths of meat organizing. <laughs> well, I'm, uh, I'm new to the whiteboard and it's on my freezer. It's blank. And uh, I'm hoping that I'm motivated enough this fall to empty out the freezer and restock it with putting um, the different animals, you know, the cuts. And we kind of do the hash mark method. We had it on a little notepad and it just a big ends up being a big scribble mess after a while. So the plan <laughs> is we're going to put it on a whiteboard on the freezer and it's up right now. We just haven't made the jump into it. So I'm looking forward to that. I think I uh, I haven't made the jump into the whiteboard. I'm a big first in first out, and then I use I use two freezers. So I've got my like regular freezer that I store everything in, sort of longer term. And then as I think about what I'm going to make for the week or the month or whatever, I'll put it in the freezer above my fridge. And then that way, because uh, I'm you know you access that get ice to get whatever and i'm like oh yeah i need to you know i'm, I'm gonna cook that or it just kind of like jogs my memory so that's sort of yeah, the way reminder. i work yeah i the way i work through it i don't know how well i was just thinking about like our current setup with the freezer because things tend to get put on top of the freezer uh which is that's where Corey's whiteboard's at he just puts it right on top um almost like attached to the freezer i imagine yeah, my, and uh, glued onto the front Oh, see, I didn't even think about that. Yeah, that's what like I was on the, it's on it's on the door, so you see it as you're approaching the freezer, and you can kind of look at your menu of what's in there. Um, and as you take something out, you use your thumb to erase the dash or you erase the line if there's only one of them, and you erase it off of there. So you're always looking at a uh, a live list of what's in there. And then for yeah. me, if I do have nice those inventory, yeah, if I have yeah, those older cuts. I typically, as I'm perusing around and I see a cut that's a little older or I, it's going to be harder to cook, whatever it may be, I'll try to bring it to the forefront and, uh, you can, that way you just can't avoid it, or at least it's going to be awkward to jump over it a couple different times, you know, looking for those tenderloins or whatever, but, um, and also a chest freezer or not a chest freezer stand up. If you can get one, you know, I bought one on Craigslist a few years ago for a hundred dollars. It's not the best, but it functions, nice. um, you know, and it's like 20 quart. And so I have two stand up freezers. And we have three kids, you know, so we have a growing family. So we have boxed pizzas and shredded cheese and all of our kind of bulk foods in, in one. And then the other one has all the wild game in it. Nice. Yeah, I have the the chest freezer um, like at the ground level. So it, with the lift up lid, that's what I was thinking about. I don't know if I could if I could put the whiteboard on there because I'm afraid, you know, uh, it's in our, our laundry room. So you get dirty laundry on top of it and all the other stuff. Yeah. Pretty much your whole your whole year's worth of inventory is wiped out in one pile of towels. You need so, something yeah. a little bit more permanent. Yeah. You can put it on the front, uh, though. It's true, but it's going to cover up all my cool stickers I got going. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm a sticker Sacramento. man myself. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's so funny. It's like you get 
you know, we're in our thirties and it's like, oh yeah, I just, I just want to collect stickers. I get excited. I found a first light sticker in a box that I was going to throw away and I was so excited. Yep. I'm one to the, uh, both sides. I've got the, my front door and my little mini fridge covered with stickers. Now I'm on the both sides of it too, trying to find more space for them. Nice. I start. I started off on the Nalgene and now I'm like on a second layer on my water bottle and I'm like, well, nah, I'm just like, I'm covering up the cool stickers with <laughs> other cool stickers. What do I do? So, um, it just always amazes me. Cause I, I keep stickers on hand and my wallet for like harvesting nature. And when I meet people, I'll just like hand them out, uh, you know, almost like business cards, but just to give away and man, everybody's so excited. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nice stack. <laughs> Uh, so we talked a little bit about about uh, your favorite game, but recipes. We we touched on the Mississippi roast, which I don't know, Colin. Is that is that one of your top favorites? Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't have a huge repertoire of wild game recipes myself. Um, not anywhere close compared to you guys, but uh, I mean, it's definitely one that I'm going to be looking forward to making again and trying it with different cuts, different animals, uh, just seeing how the flavor profile changes. But I mean, it, it's it's easy. It's simple. It tastes good. So not really much more you can ask for with it. So I will ask you this, Colin. Is there yep. like one one recipe that that when you think of going out hunting, so whether it be bird hunting, deer hunting, elk, whatever, that you're like, I want to make that. It's on my to-do list. Like, I got to make it. Um, I'd say like the kind of the longer cooking longer cooking recipes which break down some of the tougher material are ones that i really look forward to like uh long slow cooker recipes or like the four to five hour dutch oven recipes those are the ones i'm really looking forward to like breaking down and getting the juices and you know getting all the flavors in but um really i mean i'm just looking for like I, i'm not huge into like fancy recipes i don't need that presentation everything i just want to make something that tastes good and it's going to turn out well. And, uh, you know, something I can keep making over and over again, preferably something that lasts a few days too, you know, always good to bring in leftovers for work and everything. So nice. I don't know if that was the, as specific as you were looking for. But. No, no, no. But I mean, uh, it was just a very general question. Cause okay. I, I was, I was curious, um, where your mind's at as far as looking forward. So, uh, yeah. John, what about you? Do you have a, a favorite go-to recipe? Um, I do. And I already kind of mentioned it. Um, and it's not a coincidence. We have it, you know, once a week, maybe one and a half, two times a week, but just traditional soft tacos, flour, tortilla, soft tacos. I grew up with it. Um, you know, I didn't start deer hunting until I was like 14. Um, uh, but we were always excited if my uncle got an extra deer or whatever it may be. And then we, they'd give it to my mom. And so we'd have deer meat and tacos were like one of the few home cooked meals. Now, mind you, it's a super easy deal. You know, you throw some Ortega taco seasoning in and you're done, but it really takes me back and we, we love it at our house. It's pretty quick, easy. And if you want to get fancy, you can add, you know, avocado, you can add different things to make it, uh, special, but I like that just a plain, um, I, I've been doing a lot of reverse searing of venison loins. So just like on the grill, medium rare back straps, hard to beat. I know it's simple, but I really enjoy that. And then if I'm going to make a recipe, um, I have like a smothered venison recipe where I dredge the, the backstrap medallions in flour 
and I basically fry them in butter and I top it with sauteed mushrooms and onions and garlic. And, uh, you just have like a mushroom gravy poured over top of it. So it's more of like a winter meal. Like we have a lot of meals we only kind of eat in the cooler months. Um, and so that's definitely one of them I look forward to in the fall, you know, as a nice comfort. Is that the, food. um, the venison, is it scallopina? Is it? So there's, is that there's, the one that I saw on your Instagram? There's one on uh, Instagram, Balancing Scallopine or Scallopini, and that's a Stacy yeah. Harris recipe, and that's phenomenal okay. too. It's definitely that's not the same. That's a like a cutlet, I guess you would call it. So it's like a, a okay. real cutlet type of deal. So you just pound it out super thin, and you um, that's flour, then egg and breadcrumbs, and you top it with a Marsala wine mushroom deal, and that is phenomenal. Yeah. And that's one of those meals again. I, I love it so much. Oh, yeah, I love it so yeah. much, but I don't make it as often as I definitely should. And that's because I don't always like to buy okay. Marsala wine. You know, like we try to budget our food budget. And, you know, I always say I'm like a garlic yeah. powder, onion powder type of guy. It's not exactly true, but I try to do with what I got. And I do normally have brandy sure. on yeah. hand because uh, Hank Shaw's goose pastrami recipe or his uh, steak Diane recipe each call for brandy. So I normally do have brandy on hand. I, it's like Marsala wine. There's not much you can do with it out of like a couple recipes. I, I mean, I hate to say that it's a very generalized statement, but like in thinking about your classics, like one or two come to mind and that's about it. Whereas brandies is a little more treated more functionally. I think as cooking's evolved. Sure. Um, and I do like steak Diane too. So if you have backstrap, you know, and you make steak Diane, one, the sauce seems to last a few days and, or two, you could just have it regular and then you've got, you can make steak Diane the next day to spice up your leftovers. And that's one that's, that's pretty new. There's a lot of steak sauces I haven't got into yet. Um, you know, there's a Cumberland sauce and there's a bunch of different classic steak mm -hmm. sauces that there's nothing wrong with putting them on your steak. I know there's like, you know, talk out there. You don't want to put a one on your backstrap or on a good steak in general. You know, I'm always of the rule of thumb that if, if you're in the mood for a one, you know, put some a one on your steak, but yeah. Um, yeah. There's a lot of cool steak sauces that, again, there may be some weird uh, recipe, you know, weird ingredients that it may not be easily found at the store. So um, I would challenge everybody, though, and I always try to challenge myself, like tie a string on my finger to jump out of your comfort zone and try something new. Because one, it's probably going to be good. And two, it's going to be flavors you've never had. So it just it's a pretty exciting deal. I think, too, and in, in getting people outside and trying new different things, you're going to. You're going to move through your meat in a different way, and it's going to encourage you to to want to definitely get back out and uh, not just sort of let let yourself or your your hunting passion, I guess, grow a little stagnant. So that that kind of stands out to me. For sure. And uh, if you I was thinking about, I was going to say, if, if you process your own game too, and you're you're holding the cuts in your hand, and you have the ability to freeze them whole, or of course you can break them down further it opens up your recipe potential. You know, when, when I was taking my deer to a processor, they would automatically butterfly and tenderize all my backstraps into medallions and they were delicious. Right. But that's all I knew. It was when I got on Instagram and I started seeing people keep their backstraps into whole pieces. You know, you can do a stuffed backstrap or you can do different things that you can't do if it's already broke down. So when you're processing your own food, you're, ex you're even more excited to try a recipe because your hands are on it the whole process. And that's, that's a really cool thing. I know oftentimes the food tastes a lot better to me than it does to the people sitting around the table. Cause I'm more invested into it. 
Oh, absolutely. From start to finish. I mean, it's a, it's a commitment level and attention to detail and, and a passion, right? What are you sure. talking about? Like stuffed backstrap. What do you recommend stuffing it with? Um, so you really can't go wrong. I say that I'm sure you could, you know, but if, if what, <laughs> the way I, the way I see it is if you like flavors, certain flavors, you're going to know whether they're going to go together or not. You know, for example, mushrooms, right. onions, and garlic always goes well together. It wouldn't hurt to throw some cream cheese in the middle somewhere. I'm, I've got a recipe that I made and I say I made it. I, I oftentimes just make my stuff on the fly. I sometimes call them creations. But a year ago, I was in Kansas, and a friend of mine invited me out to go bird hunting. And I thought as a way to um, give them a gift for hosting me, I brought the tenderloins of the, the nice buck I had just shot. And I didn't have any plan of what I was going to do. I figured I'd just do it on the fly when I got out there. And they insisted that they made me dinner the first night, so they made shrimp scampi. And I love shrimp scampi. I love all seafood. But we had shrimp. It was delicious. The next night, I have this crazy idea. I took the shrimp scampi, which was baked in a pan. There was a lot of breadcrumbs. There was mozzarella cheese. There was the shrimp and such. And maybe there wasn't mozzarella cheese. I think I added that later. But I diced up the shrimp. I added the cheese. And I filleted out the backstrap, which was marinated a little bit in Italian dressing. And I know it's super simple, but it worked. I stuffed the venison tenderloin with shrimp scampi and then wrapped it in bacon and cooked it on his stovetop. And I'm going to put it to paper sooner than later. And... I'm going to put oh, it wow. out there and it's going to go wild. It was so indulgent, but um, I stuffed it with shrimp scampi. I didn't know I was going to do that, but I opened up the fridge and there it was, you know, it's kind of like the show chopped on food network. You know, it's like you open up the pantry mm -hmm. and what can you make? So, yeah, you know, you could stuff it with, and again, I use Google a lot. I've got some of the best wild game cookbooks in my cabinet and I don't read often. I just, I'm not a reader. I'd rather watch something. But oftentimes, whether it's myself or my wife, we just Google what we're into. We find a recipe of what we think will work for our taste and we roll with it. And a lot of times we modify it based upon our taste and so on. And if you yeah. want to read a recipe, again, there's some great books out there, um, you know, and you can go for it. But we're kind of like savory cooks here at the house. We just kind of put things that taste, yeah. we think are taste good together. Nice. Uh, the reason I ask is um, well, I just moved to Oregon to like the northwest part of Oregon. And so we have this great, uh, great harvesting opportunity up here where there's shellfish, dungeness crab, and there's a great salmon and halibut fishing. But then we have our, we have an extreme amount of waterfowl here and uh, also your elk and deer too. So it's like, I'm trying to figure out ways to combine two or three of them. And I've been thinking about maybe like a crab stuffed backstrap or something like for that sure. that that great. for sure <laughs> I don't, I you just was, can't go wrong with that I mean, you guys you guys are the expert cooks so if that, <laughs> i'm glad you're saying that sounds good because hopefully yeah. I, I have the opportunity and i'll, I'll let you know how it goes <laughs> <laughs> one thing i was going to say so a good resource uh cookbook wise that i use a lot and i've used a lot um throughout both my career in the kitchens and then, you know, of course, writing recipes and, and wild game and fish stuff is it's a book called the flavor Bible. And, uh, okay. I'll take a second to explain it. So it basically takes, it's probably, you know, it's a good two inches thick and it's a, it's a textbook essentially. I think some, a lot of cooking schools it's required reading. Um, but it goes through there and it lists almost every ingredient you can think of. And then it lists um, underneath it what it pairs with. 
So flavor wise, but it'll go a step further and there'll be ones that are bolded in capital letters. Those are the ones that pairs with the best. And then uh, there'll be one like that's italicized and that's your next step down. And then you're just normal words, but you can literally use it and put together a recipe. You can say, all right, well, I've got, you know, venison. All right. Well, under the venison list, there's, you know, 30 things. Well, one thing, you know, we know garlic goes well, shallots, rosemary, all that. So then you flip over to the rosemary and you're like, oh, rosemary. Let's see what goes good with rosemary. Oh, cream, cream sauce goes well with rosemary. So then you flip back to the venison. You look like, all right, cream seems to go well too with venison. So, all right, well now I'm going to do like a venison steak with shallots and a rosemary cream sauce boom, you just created a, a steak sauce in like less than two, three minutes. And it's oh. like, it's a it's a really neat tool. Um, they go through and modify it. I think it, it won a James Beard Award. Uh, for those that know, that's like one of the most prestigious cooking awards uh, in, in the industry. And they do it for cookbooks too. Uh, Hank Shaw's website won it one year. Um, I think some of his books may have won it. Um, I'm not certain, but... It's an absolute wonderful resource. Uh, I think it's like 30, 30 or so bucks, but I use it like every week, every other day uh, as I as I work through my own recipes. So, and it's just a good, it's a cool, fun thing to flip through too. For sure, um, cool. I'll have to check it out. And seems like it'd be a really helpful resource for uh, someone who's still learning like me. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it doesn't get into like amounts or anything like that. So you're still going to have to play with it and get comfortable. Sure. And, you know, uh, like John mentioned, use other recipes as a resource. But if you see something, a recipe that's interesting, or maybe you're like, this recipe needs a little more, or I want to put my own spin on it. It kind of gives you a, a comfort level or a safety net to be like, all right, well, let's, let's see what, let's see what everybody else says. Let's research backed, I guess, in a way. Give you some creativity okay. with uh, minimizing the risk theoretically. Yep. Cause I, I think right. a lot, a lot of people get nervous too. And I've talked about this before. It's like, it's a big commitment. You know, you come home with uh, an animal or a fish that you've spent a lot of time trying to acquire. And then once you acquire it, you're like, man, I don't want to mess this up because I put so much time and effort into it. And you know, I, I think it's like you said, it's good for people to get outside their comfort zone. And, and a lot of times it's, it's tough or you get nervous and, and everything in the kitchen is confidence, man. Just being like, I'm going to do it. If it, if it goes bad, it goes bad. Like at the end of the day, I just got to try it. It could be the next best thing for me. And, and most times it's not a disaster to you. Like to you, it's still going to taste good. Would your company or your guest maybe think it hit the mark? Maybe not. But, you know, oftentimes I really try to not get the first recipe test when I have friends over. You know, I try yeah. to, I try to uh, guinea pig on myself or my family first. I don't always do it, but I try to use it as a rule of thumb. But you really almost can't mess it up unless you overcook something. I mean, like over, overcook it, like where it's not edible. Oh. You know, you make a steak well done. It's still edible and it's still going to be delicious to you if you put that sauce on there or whatever. Um, so, yeah, I, I just I challenge so many people to to get out of your comfort zone and try something. If it looks good to what you think, you know, you would like, give it a shot, you know, and you'll be surprised. So I do want to, I do want to talk a little bit about fishing. It being summertime. I know we're kind of switching gears here, but I, I, within the realm of fishing, not just fishing itself, but also like uh, preparing and storing and cooking. Um, because you always find in summer more people are out fishing, they're harvesting different types of fish, they're 
tossing some back. They're keeping them. Maybe they don't know what to do with them. And so, uh, I guess first off, are you are you getting in, into any fishing, John? This this summer? Yes, most definitely. Um, being a inland fisherman, I definitely am envious of some of you uh, coastal fishermen <laughs> and the variety of stuff that you're able to get. Um, we do a lot of pan fishing with me and my boys. You know, I've been really putting a lot of time into them since they've been little, they've been really quite independent fishermen since they were probably five and six. I mean, other than a couple of really severe uh, tangles or something, but we do a lot of bluegill fishing. They're finally getting of age where one, they're either buying their own lures that they lose. So I don't have the heartburn and anxiety, but uh, they're getting pretty good with lures. Uh, so they do some bass fishing. They're, they're getting into sight fishing right now. So that, you know, they see the mm -hmm. bass, they try to catch the bass. Um, and we belong to a, a, just a small private campgrounds where they've got a, a two acre pond that they stock with channel cats. And so we do, you know, we just cast a pole out there with night crawlers and we like to eat catfish. So, um, I do have a plan trip in the next couple of weeks to go to Lake Erie to walleye fish. So being in Ohio, Lake Erie's, you know, they call it the walleye capital of the world. And this particular year from anyone I've talked to, it's the best year ever as far as fish uh, on the, the boat. Not only fish on the boat, but quality, um, what do they call it, the, just the class size. The class size this year is great. Um, just a lot of people are catching walleye like crazy this year. So if you're near Lake Erie or you want to make a trip, this is the year to do it. And uh, this will be their first time getting on the lake, and it'll be my first time since 2012. And Walleye is one of the best eating fish. I love to eat it. I don't always eat it, so it's, I wouldn't call it my favorite, but it's one of the best eating, if not the best eating fish that I've had. You know, I haven't had halibut. I haven't had some of the others that folks always rave about, but uh, we try to fish when we can. If, if we're not playing sports or something, uh, the camper's 30 minutes away, um, so we try to get after it. That's, that's awesome. Colin, have you uh have you had a chance to get get after any fish since you've been there? I know you're getting settled. Not yet. Today's actually the last day of halibut season. Um, so funny that you mentioned halibut. It's actually the last day for it out here. But uh, I I don't think it's. I mean, there's our charters that go out for halibut, and I have halibut fish before when I was in Alaska a few years ago. Um, but mostly, I think it's commercial out here because I mean, halibut goes into a lot of volume fish fillets and you can get like frozen halibut at the store. Um, but no, I, to make that answer a little bit shorter. No, I haven't really got out to much fishing yet. Um, I think once the salmon run starts a little, a few months from now, that's when I'll, I'll start to, to branch out and try and capture one of those. Is does salmon overlap with the hunting seasons or is it, is it before? It does. It does for some of them. Uh, I think it's like October range, October, August to October range is when the salmon run starts. Uh, I might be wrong on that, but, um, yeah, that's, that's generally when it happens and there's a couple of big tournaments and, uh, when the run starts, there's a, there's a couple of big, uh, like charter opening weekends where, uh, they're going to have a lot of people out, maybe like a hundred, 200 boats out on the river, uh, because that's when the salmon are coming up and then they pretty much just follow the salmon as they go up the river. That's pretty cool. Yeah. It's, that's one of the things that intrigues me. I've always wanted to do is, is get out salmon fishing. Um, you know, I, I grew up in Oklahoma and it's like, we, we fish for catfish, fish for yeah. large mouth bass. We had striped bass, uh, perch, which everybody else either calls brim or like sunfish, but yeah. we call them perch. <laughs> um, and then you have like bluegill crappie, 
um, those are the primary for us. And it's a, uh, it's funny. I, I just, I put together a, a recipe that just went out on the mediator website here this last week of a, a catfish Creole, uh, recipe. Yeah, I saw that. yeah. And, uh, I, I talk about in there, like, I didn't even realize you could, you could growing up in Oklahoma, I didn't realize you could buy catfish in the store until I went to college because I was always just like, every, if anybody wants catfish, they just go fishing. Like why, why would you have to need to go buy it? Well, you could just Nature catch it whenever. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, uh, a little bit of, of naive young Justin there, uh, and then quickly realizing the world is a much different place. But, uh, nonetheless, I, uh, always dreamed about, so we had some trout, uh, they would stock one of the local rivers with trout, which, never really got to fish much. Um, and then they would die off cause of the, the heat would get too much. And then, uh, salmon always dream still is. I'm, I'm yeah. going to make it up there while you're there calling. Yeah, definitely. Uh, we're going to do some I gotta, salmon fishing. I gotta get some of the good spots first and, you know, make some good friends with boats first. And then, uh, yeah, then it'll be a good time. We got to try some of that dip netting. Yeah, that too. We've got to figure that out. Yeah. There are, I guess there are one a couple thing, One thing that's, go ahead one thing that's kind of foreign one thing that's kind of foreign to me is uh seasons for fish um like i'm i need to be better at it but i I don't do it often so i don't i don't look at it but i know like for walleye for example early in the season while they're breeding i think your limit is four until a certain day and then after that it's a six but there's always a season for walleye i'm pretty sure um and, you know, I can go out and maybe I can't keep bass at a certain lake or something from a certain time, but I can fish for them always. But like mm-hmm. you referenced halibut season, I work for Pheasants Forever. They're based out of Minnesota. And in Minnesota, they have a, a fish opener. They have a fishing opener. Like you can't fish lakes or something until a certain day, you know, like May 15th or whatever it is. It's the wildest thing. And people look forward to it. It's like just like opening season for deer or whatever. It's the wildest thing, but it's just... We don't have that here in Ohio, and I, it's just—it's crazy. I I wonder if some of it, especially in places like Minnesota and stuff, if it's the like the haul over from from ice being on the lakes and stuff, it's just not a safety issue. Because um, I mean, there's fish there year round, but it's like if you get a late season with the ice and people are out there trying to fish or something, uh, it may be easier. Just like all right, typically May time, we're not going to have any ice, so that makes it becomes sense. Less I, of a problem. You're probably right. It seems like it might be more of a saltwater thing also. And there's more room for migration. Um, whether like down in down in the Keys, it was whether the uh, the mahi are coming in or even for sport fishing too, like the trophy fishing or like all oh, the tarpon are coming back in. There would be a, a few months where the, the snappers would be out to sea. And then right now, know, I think, it was, I think it, oh yeah, they're out right now. So yep. then like back in the spring, they would come back in close to shore. Um, so I think some of it has to do with saltwater versus freshwater also, just based on you know, managing and conserving the resource. Um, like salmon are federally regulated out here. So, you know, it, it's, it's pretty, pretty closely watched, uh, especially by the people that I work with and everything. And one of the guys in my office is the living Marine resource officer. So, I mean, he's all about that stuff. Man, what a job. I, I get. I, I think I get. I could get into that job. That'd be fun. It's just like you find something to be passionate about. You know, John, like you working for Pheasants Forever. Like that's, you know, you're protecting, working with the resource, which is awesome. So, mm-hmm. 
Dream job, huh? Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Here at Harvest in Nature, we are known to cook a variety of wild fish and game in a variety of ways. Probably one of my favorite methods is to cook in a smoker. Traeger Grills has some of the best products out there. Their pellet grills aren't just grills. They're smokers and ovens too. Anything you can do in the oven in your house, you can do on the Traeger. You can make desserts. You can grill steaks. You can use cast iron pans and braise tough cuts. You can allow roasts and briskets to smoke all day until they're tender and delicious. You can even use it to make jerky. Their variety of pellets are also very impressive. The different flavors of wood allow you to pair with your meat or fish or vegetables and give it the most flavor that you can create. They even have varieties created specifically for your next wild fish or game meal. So, and talking about saltwater fishing, so the past weekend we went out uh went out three times and one day a good day of spear fishing and then a not good day trying to target mahi so like colin was saying the mahi are sort of coming in and out now and then we were reading the reports from the day before we went out and they're catching mahi and blue marlin at around three to four hundred feet of water or four hundred i'll say three hundred to five hundred and then um so we went out kind of targeting that range the next day and hit. So you find like a weed line where you go and then you set up all your bait and your trawl and you kind of chum and you try to pull the schools up uh, from whatever depth they're at up to the surface uh, to catch. And we, we trolled one spot at that depth for, man, it must've been uh, about five, six hours or no, it was about four hours, and then we pushed out further. We pushed out to about 750 to 850, the depth, which is about another 10 miles out. So all in all, we we're about 25 miles offshore uh, running running uh, the weed line, just kind of trolling. And even still, like we spent another three hours out there before we were like, nope, it's, uh, it's time to call it. And so read the reports coming in the following day in reference of that day and people were pulling in mahi at like 1200 to 2000 feet uh of depth which so it's like that would have been another 15 to 20 miles out for us and it's like i just find it it, it's crazy when you think about it it's like all right one day you have the you have fish at you know 15 miles offshore and then in a less than 24 hour period they're now 45 miles offshore that's wild yeah it's crazy and i mean not not to mention we had a full moon too and there's of course a lot everybody's got their theories of like why you don't catch fish and like it was a west wind and it was a full moon and they're not gonna bite because you know you're using day old bait like who knows so anyway (laughs) lessons learned from uh from that but it's still it's hard to I think coming down and, and starting to get into the saltwater world, it's just like one thing that 
that sort of intimidated me on was just like the vastness and the concept of thinking like, all right, here I am going to target this fish and it may be there and it may not. And while I'm trying to target this fish, there's also 50 other varieties of fish out here that I could catch. And I have no idea what they are. Yep. So, yeah. Uh, it, it definitely makes, makes me miss freshwater sometimes, but it's also like there's, it's a whole new frontier to explore. So I'm looking forward to exploring it. Uh, my dad lives in Florida. He's not a saltwater fisherman himself, but my uncle is. So I need to just be a little bit more pushy uh, to get them to take me out. My my experiences on saltwater, I could probably count on one hand. And uh, the last time I went out was uh, me and a couple of buddies and our wives went to Mexico for our 10th wedding anniversary. And I lined up this charter. And we had the option, as it was told to me, to catch maybe 40 to 60 smaller fish or we could go out and try to catch four to eight big fish. And I was like, I can catch, you know, I say small fish, maybe they were three, four, five, eight pounds, whatever. But I was like, let's go for the big fish. You know, that's what we're out here for. So we paid for this charter and uh, I'm pretty good on the boat. I'm good in the water. You know, I, I don't really get seasick or car sick. I'm sure you can see where this is going, but um, <laughs> I, I was the avid fisherman of the three of us. And uh, we had a six pack of Corona cause why not, you know? And I didn't even make it out of the channel and started feeling a little off, you know, and uh, it wasn't too long after I was in the back of the boat. And then it wasn't too soon thereafter. I was in the fetal position, sleeping on top of my cooler uh, underneath the deck of the boat the whole trip. We didn't didn't have a single bite the whole trip. I kept thinking to myself, if we could just get a bite, you know, maybe my, my, my stomach would change and, I didn't know. I was told afterwards maybe I should have jumped in the water. Who knows what? But not a single bite. The deckhand was super nice. He was always changing baits and doing his thing. But uh, I need to need to get my rights or my wrongs right. I need to go out again soon. Yeah. yeah. What what uh what part of Florida? Uh, he lives in Ocala, so he lives in the central part of uh, Florida. Yeah, yeah. But my uncle lives, I believe, on the eastern coast. I don't know exactly where, but uh, he goes out quite frequently. Uh, my dad's just, uh, he's a pan fisherman. He doesn't like the big water. Uh, so he's just, you know, he's kind of rubbing off on me, you know. So I need to be like, all right, I'm going to ditch you <laughs> and go fishing with Uncle Jim, you know, uh, and get out there and just, I don't care what it is, snapper, uh, tuna, I, you know, just anything. I just, I, I like catching fish. Yeah. And eating That's fish. That's fun, man. Yeah, it's it's very very rewarding when you get that that fish on, uh, no matter what size. I think you know it's. I haven't really caught anything. I haven't caught like a marlin or anything, but uh, you know, catching like snapper and then catching stuff that's like even slightly bigger. I mean, it's always it's always fun, no matter what's on there. I think. Yeah. Also, for me, the mystery of not knowing, you know, I don't know how the pole fights or, you know, you could tell by the fight of the fish potentially what it is. I mean, I wouldn't have any idea if the boat captain didn't tell me. So it's like, oh, man, what's on the other end of the line here, you know? And then I'd be like, well, how good is it to eat? You know, put it in the cooler. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You get in the whole whole debate of you have people that bleed out fish, people that don't bleed out fish. Like it's, there's a, uh, I've had some bad experiences with, and and it's still debatable just because I think it's a lot of theories of like, should I bleed fish out or should I not? And we had almost a whole catch, uh, spoiled. And that's like, everybody's like, they should have bled the fish out. Your, your deckhand wasn't doing his job. Um, but I don't know. It could have been a million different things. 
Sure. I, I've not done it. I'm not opposed to it. I've just never been around folks who do it. I mean, typically you're not doing it with bass, catfish, crappie, mm-hmm. et cetera, but not to say you couldn't. Um, but I think more so with like tuna and salmon and probably those types of fish, it's probably more important for sure. Um, you know, so again, I, I'm just culture or uh, I keep saying culture. I'm, I'm not cultured. I'm sheltered in many ways. I'm very avid fisherman and, and hunter, but I only know what I know. I haven't been exposed to a lot of uh, different things. And, and, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. But oh, you're willing sure. to get you you're willing to get outside the box, which is the most that's the most important part, I think. For sure. I think a lot of it too uh, is now that I do have the itch to go do some of these things, I want my kids to experience it and so that way they've been open to it and therefore they want to do it again but I want to take them at an age in which they'll appreciate it. So I think they're about a year or two away. Like I said, they're 11 and 10. Um, they're going to be getting to a point where, you know, hell, they're being about as big as I am, you know, and uh, they'll appreciate things. So I think a lot of that will start to ramp up here in the next couple of years for us. That's good. Um, what was I going to ask? I was going to ask, uh, you guys, you guys get gar and carp and all that up there too. Yeah, we do. Um, it's not a species that we target. I mean, we do get gar up here, but they're obviously they're most in the rivers. I'm not a river fisherman by nature. Um, you know, we have the Ohio River up here. Obviously, I'll, I'll be honest. I, I grew up in Ohio for 30 years. I've never, I've never fished it. Um, I was, I was in Missouri for six, and I finally got myself to go in the Missouri once. We did some trot lining and got some a uh, couple blue catfish and some gar. But my kids love it. They love watching these shows on Netflix, you know, catching monsters or whatever it is. They think the gar mm-hmm. is like the best fish ever to catch. So um, I've not eaten either of them. Of course, I wouldn't be opposed to it if it was prepared the right way. Um, and I've never never bow fished for it. I know that's oftentimes a way to target those fish. And uh, again, I'm, I'm not a huge archery guy right now. I, I have a compound. I killed my first doe last year, uh, this, this last fall. But Again, bow fishing something. I'm, it's just another addiction that you add to your repertoire that takes up time and <laughs> yeah. money. You know, uh, I'm still getting my honeymoon phase of turkey hunting uh, over the last six years. It's still it's absorbing a lot of my time. I was just trying to look. I saw an an email come through the other day because I still get the uh, the notifications from um, like Department of Wildlife in Oklahoma, and. Uh, Oh, I can't see if it's on here. I may have deleted it. I think I did. But they, uh, I think it was like a potential world record, like gar uh, caught in one of the lakes in Oklahoma. I may have seen that, um, yeah. Yeah, and it was just like massive. The guy's holding it up, and he's just like, oh, my gosh, this thing's huge. And I just, I couldn't imagine that floating around in the water, you know, yeah, where it could. Yeah. yeah, like, how do you move around? Yeah. You know, um, but definitely the the bow fishing part. Um, I know I had that on the list to chat about a little bit, and I think Will was gonna take the reins on that because he was he just uh, passing through Texas and was doing some bow fishing and stuff. And uh, they they do bow fish for a lot of gar there. And I know carp has been big. Uh, I do I do question sort of people eating them or not eating them. And I know carp being an invasive species, there's a uh, there's sort of the movement to eradicate them or battle. I don't know if we'll ever fully eradicate them at this point, but um, I like to always find creative ways and create good conversation of like, hey, we have this invasive species, but this invasive species is also edible. So what what 
what are you know what are we doing as a person or like why 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 or why not are we eating this this animal so fish. In, in you know there's different species of carp obviously that you know some of them are super invasive obviously like your asian carps and so on and that's what a lot of folks target um the missouri department of conservation uh, which is one of the leading state agencies in the country um you know they have the missouri river they have the mississippi river um, mm-hmm. and both of those fisheries are invaded with these asian flying carp and such and they do outreach workshops where they teach folks how to eat these carp. And I'll admit, like, you know, they're not the best fish to handle. They're super slimy. It's really a pretty weird deal. And that you got to kind of be delicate on how you clean them. But they show you how to clean them. And then they make like uh, the, the particular workshop I went to. They were like these little Cajun croquettes. It was like a, a Cajun fish hush puppy uh, is kind of what it was. And it was more than edible. It was, it was really good. It's a lot oh, of, the like a kalai, is that what the what the rice? No, it was more like flour, um, kind of like a hush puppy. It just had fish yeah, mixed okay. into it. Oh, nice. Yeah, and so, yeah, so like a hush puppy and a crab cake had a baby, um, you know. But <laughs> super edible, you know, super edible. There's a lot of work to it. Like, there's a lot of different cuts. I know Colin mentioned something about a tough cut. You know, you just can't put it on the grill, uh, grill and sear it and eat it. Some of this stuff whether it be wild game or it be fish, you know, I had paddlefish um, a couple of years ago. I, I did a snagging trip um, on Lake of the Ozarks and, you know, it's a different situation. It's a different um, technique. It's not for everybody. It's kind of a weird deal. You just stand on a boat and you're trying to snag these paddlefish. Um, there's a limit of two per person. And the best thing about it is it yields a ton of meat. I came home with like 40 pounds of meat and it lasted me two years. Wow. I just finished it off just the other day. Um, but there was a process where it was like three days of draining the oils out of the meat, right? And um, you had to drain the oils out, uh, keeping the water cool, no salt water, just, you know, putting new water in the cooler. Um, you had to make sure to get all the fat and gray meat off the meat so that it, you know, didn't give it an off taste. There was a whole lot to do. And, it, you know, it wasn't like eating walleye. It wasn't uh, the best eating fish, but it is edible. And, uh, you know, it is good. And there's multiple ways to do it. And I didn't experiment too much um with the different recipes they make fish patties they make uh, all kinds of different stuff but um asian carp gar it would all be good you just can't do what you normally would do with the common fish eat you know and that's where those recipes and google and forums and different yep. you know foraging groups will you just throw the question out there and someone's eating it i guarantee it um and someone's probably had positive results with it i was looking uh i don't know if you guys know this uh Gar eggs are toxic to mammals. Did not know that. Yeah. So careful if you venture out to go clean some gar. And I don't know if it's like a, if it's like if you cut your finger and at the same time we're cutting an egg. I don't know. I don't know the specific, like how they're toxic. I just kind of was, uh, when, as I was researching a little bit more into gar, that was a, an interesting fact that caught my eye. And I was like, huh. I never would have thought that's probably like one of the, one of the few freshwater fish, you know, that they can think of off the top of my head that why would it have toxic eggs? Would it be, would it be, they have a, a weird niche for collecting higher levels of mercury than other types of fish by chance. And then, so the mercury is what ultimately gets them. I know that there's certain rivers and fisheries that fish can obtain high levels of mercury and you're only supposed to eat so many a year from the different you know, I mean, that, I guess 
that would make sense because isn't the theory behind the mercury buildup being that like you get it a lot in fish that are more predaceous or eat a you know a wider array of of smaller fish and then it's like over time they don't dissipate that mercury out so it kind of accumulates well gar being uh mostly carnivorous they would they would tend to maybe there's a they don't have a method to to displace that mercury i don't know sure. that's a Bio- biomagnification is the term you're looking for where smaller critters will eat their or like absorb the toxins through plants that they eat or something else maybe like small plankton um plankton like animals and then uh as larger and larger fish eat those and then larger and larger fish eat the ones that eat those then yeah it accumulates it as it goes up there you go that's your tip of the day <laughs> fun fact that is, that's uh yeah i mean that would make sense to me i mean i'm not yeah i'm not a biologist but it <laughs> in my mind it seems to work but uh yeah, I don't know. It, it would be worth digging into more. Um, maybe I'll take that down and that'll be a nice little research topic for myself. Um, I do want to, while we're talking about fish and, and storing fish, um, want to talk about some of the best methods for storing fish. And I know there's a ton out there. Um, everybody's got their tips and tricks, but uh, John, what's a a good method that you use pretty frequently to store your fish. Yep. So I really only have one and it's just my go-to for everything. And it's back sealing. Um, I like to be able to see the fish. I like to see, be able to see the cut of meat. Um, it seems it doesn't last in my freezer for very long. You know, I say long and longer than a year. Normally fish may not even last three, three to six months just because I eat it. You know, it would last. I just, I'm not worried about it as much as far as preservation. Cause I eat it so much. Um, so I do the back seal. Um, my dad catches and puts away fish and he uses the Ziploc bag with water and like Mm -hmm. freezes them within water and it works great for him. And I'm I'm sure it would work great for me too. I just think back sealing so easy. You throw it in the bag, back seal it, it's done. Um, so those are the two methods I'm familiar with and I would, I would feel comfortable doing either. You, uh, do you ever throw much fish on the smoker? Again, I'm mostly doing bluegill catfish and stuff, and I'm not saying that you can't smoke those. Um, so I, I don't smoke a lot of fish. And I will say that I had uh, a friend of mine in Missouri who was a school teacher, and he chartered his own fishing boat in Alaska for about five, six weeks and would come back with some of the best salmon I've ever eaten. And I would buy salmon from him, and I, that's my go-to for salmon is to smoke it. Um, mm-hmm. whether, whether it be like a quick smoke or a long, low and slow smoke, I, I like both. Um, but most times I, I, I wanted to maybe talk more about that. Um, just kind of ex- expanding my fish recipes. Um, most of it revolves around frying fish. For sure. Um, I think so for, for your, with fish and storage, you get into, a sort of time clock with it and you mentioned it with the paddlefish and I'm glad you did. So getting the oils out and soaking it and getting the, the fats and all that stuff out, that's one of your leading causes to fish spoilage in the freezer. 
that's why you see traditionally like salmon is smoked before it's stored. You know, smoke is a preservation method that slows oxidation and, and all that stuff. And the oxidation is what breaks down uh, the meat. You know, you, you have bacteria and all the other things that come into it, but the, the oxidation really does the work. And by freezing it, back sealing in particular, you're, you're preventing that oxygen from penetrating in the meat. And that, that's what's uh, a really key factor about the vac seal. Cause you get people that'll plastic wrap things and they'll still either get freezer burn or those, those, they'll spoil. So there's a type of plastic like Saran Saran wrap itself is a, uh, some of plastic, some plastic wraps are still uh, permeable by air, I guess permeable i don't know that may be a liquid term, right. but yeah it works yeah you understand what i'm saying so air can travel through it but saran plastic particularly does not and vacuum seal bags uh i've learned recently contain a layer of saran inside of the layers of plastic which is why you know you you get things that are vacuum sealed will last longer yeah so, i just i just finished up that um paddlefish which was two years and a couple months old and some of that same salmon i referenced i still have it out there um it says best by august of 20. now i know i got it two years ago um mm -hmm. and it, it tastes just fine you know and it's got a super tight seal now i didn't seal those uh he may have did it on the boat or soon thereafter um but yeah that's just my go-to it's easy and i can see i can see if it's gone bad rather than you know have something within a paper and I think I'm getting ready to eat this fish and I open it up and it's, it's done gone South, you know? So that's, that's my benefit for that. I think some other, uh, some other cool concepts with, with storing fish, uh, both, um, canning. So just like, just like you'd can vegetables, you can fish. And I know a lot, uh, pike's a big one people do cause the, it'll dissolve the bones, the heat and the pressure and, and I, the, acid and the vinegar uh will dissolve the bones so it makes it a little more edible and i would imagine the same with carp and probably gar if you wanted to chunk it up and do it that way it would dissolve dissolve bones in the same way so um it could be some interesting methods and then just tin cans just think of like the evolution of canning tuna like that used to be a common method for lots of types of fish. There's lots of kits out there you can get where you can can fish yourself. And I think salmon's a uh, a pretty common thing. People will take it yeah. and can it, and it'll it extends the shelf life. And it's not too long a process. I'm trying to remember. I think one of my uncles had it, and they were they were canning. I don't forget if it was fish or they were canning another type of meat, but. Uh, it, it didn't seem like it was very complicated in the process. Like you think of it on a very industrial scale and it seems a little, a little different, but if it's just like a small device to use at home, um, wouldn't be too bad. I, I'd like, I need to get more into canning. I, I would not be hesitant for fish, but you know, I do, uh, like my fried fish pretty good, but, um, canning is simple. It's just, it's, it's something you just need to get to your comfort zone a little bit and just say, Hey, I'm going to try something a little different. I know a lot of people can venison too. Um, mm -hmm. and I've had it and it tastes pretty good, you know, and it's a, just another method of eating. It. It's another method of storing it. Um, so that's one of the things that's on my short list is canning. I may even add canning fish on there now. Uh, yeah. Pick, pickling. That's I think awesome. they, you know, they pickle pike and they do things like pickled that. Pike, yeah. Yeah. You know, so 
I'm, I'm up for anything. If, if, especially if I'm shown, I need to find someone to show me how they do it and, uh, go from there. But I never, I'm not open to, or I'm not opposed to just experimenting and see where it goes. You know, I think, um, uh, Mediator, they have a, in one of their cookbooks, they have a, a pickled pike recipe, I believe. Um, I remember seeing it the other day. Sure. Well, I've got those, so I'll look for it. But I, I think I've only caught one pike my entire life. I was like 14. I was in Canada, and I was my target species was perch, and I got lucky, uh, <laughs> you know. But I, I, I'm sheltered, man. I've, I've never, I don't think I can't say I've never fished for wall or a muskie, but I've never caught a muskie. Um, I just do what I do a lot, you know, and I'm pretty good at it. Yeah. You know, I just need to. Like so, I'm hoping the boys will motivate me to uh, to get out more and branch out and go see different parts of the country and fish and hunt different parts of the country. And so, looking forward to that. Getting some yeah. more adventures. Um, while we're on the the topic of storing, I guess uh, we already we definitely touched on it a lot already. But uh, just sort of looking at the same, and you know, my go to for storing the game meat itself, or you know, vacuum seal. I do that. Um, I did take a couple animals to the processor last year. I typically like to do it by myself uh, on my own, and that way I get the full range. But we were crunched for time and uh, a long way from home, so it's just like we, we had to go with the processor option. And and they did a great job. It's just like still in the back of my mind, it's not the same. Um, not a bad option if you need it, but just not my personal preference. So. Uh, in that I ended up some different ways that the meat was stored that I wouldn't traditionally do. Like they use the, you know, those ground bags with a little seal on it. Like I, I still prefer to vacuum seal ground meat. Um, I think it was, uh, it was Brad from go wild. We were having a conversation about it and he was talking about how he flattens out his, his meat packages. And, uh, that's a really good method cause it, your thaw time cuts down. Uh, yeah, you know, I, just, I think that was him. My yeah. uh, my dad does that religiously with his ground meat. I mean, he he's uh, a pretty prolific, proficient hunter, and uh, he needs to be strategic on spacing in his freezer. And he is a big uh, advocate of the Ziploc bag with the ground meat. I do like the cylindrical bags. Um, and the one tip that I found. Um, and, and it's twofold, I guess. I don't want to miss over it. Like when you're processing your game and we're talking about storing, I really try to drain as much of the blood or myoglobin or whatever you want to call it, the fluid that's in your game, whether it's your waterfowl or your deer specifically or the two species I'll touch on. The more of that you can drain out, the better your meat's going to taste. Um, and because mm-hmm. you know, it's not when it thaws out, it's not sitting in all that either. So right now I just use paper towels, you know, in the bottoms of my meat lugs as I'm processing and it, it gets a pretty good portion of it out. But for what it doesn't get out, if I take my cylindrical ground meat bag, I take it out of the freezer. I have your standard 24, 30 ounce uh, stadium cup you got from your, uh, you know, baseball or football stadium. And I put cold water in a cup. And I put the meat in the cup and I let it sit there for a little bit. Um, and then just until it gets soft on the bottom. And then I slit the bag from both what I would call the ears of the corners. And I slit the bag. I've got paper towels in the bottom and I put it back in the fridge. Thaws out. It's continuing to drain all the fluid out. I do that in the morning and it's always ready. You know, pull it out of the, pull it out of the uh, fridge an hour or so before you're ready to cook. 
Um, it works for us. It, you know, it does take up more space than the methods you just mentioned, but it allows for better drainage of that fluid. Um, and we've gotten to be so good at it during the, the breakdown process that the paper towel and the fridge part is just kind of a, a last effort thing. But oftentimes, you know, most of that fluid is gone. It's going to give you a better sear on your meat. It's going to give you a better flavor. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's like a really big tip that I found has been successful for me. That's a, yeah, that's a good tip. Um, I use a, uh, try to use, so I'll, I have metal bowls that I typically thaw in cause you, you know, you put them, they wash pretty easy. They clean really well. You don't get, you know, things built up if you cut or scrape the side of it. Uh, but I'll take like a spaghetti colander and I'll put in there and it, it'll be a little bit smaller to fit in the bottom. So it gives some space and then I'll put my meat in there, uh, as it thaws and let it set and let it drain down. And kind of like you said, it, it gets a little drier, uh, especially being in the fridge too. Uh, and you, I mean, you could cover it with plastic wrap too to prevent anything from going in there. But it lets that that uh, proteinaceous fluid or whatever it is to to come yeah. out of it. The, the simple man's so term is blood. I don't I don't know if it's quite blood, but you know, if you want to call yeah. it that, call it that. You know, but yeah. it's best to get it out. I've been told. Um, I learned from. Uh, his name's McGannon on the uh, Sporting Chef, but that's where the flavor of whatever animal you're consuming, that's where the flavor of what it's eating is. So if you have a merganser or a shoveler or whatever it may be, and you know those aren't the best eating ducks, you can make them taste better, but that flavor of what they're eating is flowing through that fluid in between the muscles. So specifically with waterfowl too, I, I've the last few batches I got late season, I brined it um with like just a game bird brine and then i froze it so when i pull it out it's brined and ready to smoke or ready to to sear or huh. whatever and that's uh, another good tip yeah, yeah waterfowl uh, there, I'm there's definitely a, you know, that. yeah i i just bought a whole bunch of like waterfowl and game bird licenses and tags up here because the waterfowl the waterfowl opportunities here are are, are plentiful so i'm looking forward to that i'll have to keep that in mind yeah, there's a progression of a of a sportsman, you know, um, just like there's a there's a progression of a hunter where you know you just want to kill something, right? You want then you want to limit out and this and that. Next thing you know, you're changing your implement, right? You're going from a high powered rifle to a compound bow to a recurve to, to where you're just taking the camera out or you're taking out new hunters. There's a progression. Well, as as a wild game eater, it's the same thing. It's like everything's wrapped in bacon. You're eating burgers, meatloaf, tacos. And, and then you progress, right? And then you try different wild game. Um, and then there's, there's a part where you're like, I need to take my ground meat. And I need to put 30% worth of pork fat and another 28% of bacon ends. And this the next thing you know, you're not even eating venison anymore. But then you get to a point where you're like, I'm just doing venison, you know? And I like, you know, there's a difference if you make a burger with a little bit of pork fat or tacos with a little bit of pork fat than when it's just venison. It's just different. Um, but you have to go through all those phases and there's a time where it's like, you just want to eat everything medium rare with salt and pepper. Um, and you can appreciate it for a little while, but once you move through that phase and you realize how good waterfowl can be when you brine it, it's a game changer. You know, there, there's a, a high mountain seasoning makes an upland game bird brine. And I know it sounds weird saying it, but it tastes like Thanksgiving when you brine your waterfowl. Like it's got so much herbs in it, like a Thanksgiving That's stuffing awesome. or something. It just tastes like Thanksgiving and you're eating a mallard or whatever it is, Canada goose breast. So I, I know, I mean, I'll, I'm not saying I won't ever not brine my waterfowl again, but 
if I've got the time and the means, I'm going to do it. And uh, again, for those picky eaters, you know, waterfowl isn't venison, right? It's a whole nother level of mm-hmm. flavor that you need to get accustomed to. Yeah. So if you're introducing new people and you brine it, I'd be hard pressed to, that they wouldn't even know what they were eating, to be honest. It's just really good. It's a game changer for me. And I just got turned on to that last fall. So I like okay. that. That's 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 another hot tip. This is an episode full of hot tips. Yeah, like, science and hot tips. I'm, I'm not upset about <laughs> it. <laughs> yep. Um, I do want to talk a little bit about. So, whenever you get, whenever you get, we'll, we'll use deer as a good example because we can we can all speak that common language as far as big game. Um, breaking down quarters. Are you breaking them down? sealing them and then storing them or do you run across times where you're putting them in the freezer hole breaking them down later like there's a there's a huge debate on thaw and refreeze and you know i i don't there's not scientifically a right or wrong way uh, i think it comes down to flavor and meat quality but i'm just curious everybody's method i'm, I'm a curious sure. guy <laughs> sure so as far as just the thaw and rethaw I, I don't do it often but i do know that meat eater come out with a, a really prominent article about it where he said that you know there's nothing wrong with it as long as you know the meat stays fairly cold during the process and and all that um that said for the longest time i didn't have a smoker so i really didn't have any way to cook the meat if i left it whole so i would break down the quarters muscle by muscle and uh vacuum seal them you know by their muscle and depending on how small or large the deer was i would either put two of two shanks in one bag or mm-hmm. i put one shank in a bag or one bottom round etc one tenderloin versus both um so i break it all down ahead of time um but now that i have a smoker i i have experimented with a front like some front shoulders of whitetail i haven't mastered it yet um you know, it's edible, but it's not what it should be. So I just need to do more of it. I need to get practice doing it and experiment. Um, I did shoot um, a very, very small white tail this fall, um, more so to prove a point to my oldest son. It was his first year hunting and he missed the same deer twice um, just from super. He had doe fever, I guess you would call it, you know, and um, to his credit, it was a small target. Uh, she was not the largest of animals, but uh, we harvested it. Lesson was learned, you know, take your time. And uh, the entire boned out hind quarter, because I shot it in Missouri, so you have to bone out all the bones to transport it out of state. The whole hind quarter fit, I, I want to say it was a gallon bag or a, it may have been, a, I don't think it was a quart bag, but man, it was small. So I've got both of those sitting in the freezer. They're probably four to five pounds of pieces it. I mean, it, I got like 12 pounds of meat out of this deer and I did a pretty thorough job. There was really no rib meat to get, but point being, most times I uh, break it down. But if you have a recipe in mind, if you have the smoker or the cooking implement available, then, then that's when you have that vision of what you want to do with it. Yep. And I think to tie it back to what we said, just having the forethought and even spending time thinking about it as you're breaking down the animal in the field, like, you know, just to keep thoughts in your head. I know it's an, it's a big task to, to start to move and, and process the animal, but it's also important for later steps to think about like, Hey, what am I going to do with this? Where is it going to get used? Cause it's, it's all, it's the entire process. It's not just one step check, one step check. Like as, as 
you become, and I'm just sort of talking to the the listeners in general, like as you become more proficient and, and you hit those like stages, like John mentioned of, of eating wild game and trying different things, like honing your skills and having just a, a good plan will almost always set you up for success to where when you're in the kitchen cooking something and then you're at the dinner table eating it, like you're going to have the best quality because it, it starts early in the process. Agreed. And you could always break it down further. So if you, mm-hmm. left, you know, so there are opportunities where, you know, I may say, you know what I need, to, I'm out of deer jerky and I'd like to make some deer jerky. And I go in and I hate to sacrifice certain cuts, but it's just like, you're going in the jerky pile or I want to make some brats or some sausages. Um, if you've already broken, like, you know, I have a buddy who his son shot his first deer this year. And he's like, I'm just going to grind up the whole thing, back straps and all. I'm going to grind it up. And now it's worth noting that he, his wife's family is, uh, they, they live on a beef farm, right? So they have a freezer full of porterhouses and ribeyes and wild game mm-hmm. isn't on the same level um, as it is in my house, which is it rains king here. We don't buy beef or anything. Uh, we buy chicken and pork, but we don't buy beef. And he was going to grind it all up. And I was like, you just can't do that to me. You know, I was like, give me the back straps. I'll prep them for you. I'll freeze them for you. And I'll have you over for dinner and I'll have your son over for dinner. And I was like, I'll make it for his birthday. I'll make it for, you know, a special occasion. And we've done that twice now. So his back straps, it was a one and a half year old deer, whitetail. It was, it was huge. Um, so I, I always keep the, what I call the flats or the part that's down by the, the uh, rear and you have the center cut. And then I, what I call the backstrap tails is up near the neck. And those are my favorites, uh, the ones that are up closer to the neck. And so we cook some on a campsite Memorial Day weekend. It was just campfire cooking. And then I had them over here, and we made um, here at the house, just right on the smoker, reverse seared. And I've got one set left. And I don't know if we'll do it for his birthday or we'll have him over for New Year's or something. But um, point being is he, he, gr- he grinds it all up, you know, and then you're really stuck at that point for spaghetti, meatloaf, burgers, et cetera. When you, mm-hmm. when you break it down into the individual muscles, you can always make burger. You always can. And it's probably going to be real nice and fresh. It's going to be better tasting if you want to make a burger that way. I don't have the patience for that. But if you give yourself the opportunity to make all these different recipes, whether it's asabuco or, you know, that's one that's kind of like everyone's first time branching out into something fancy is asabuco, you know, and it's, it's a fairly easy dish. Um but it sure seems fancy. It makes you feel accomplished and it's a great dish. So it's a great way to branch out. Uh, But if you grind that shank, you know, which I would not recommend anyways, um, just what I've learned when you see that muscle with all that connective tissue and cartilage, you don't, that's not going to break down if you make tacos in a pan or, you know, a burger on the grill. So uh, Mm -hmm. a low and slow cut for your shanks. I don't care how you cook it or what flavors you use, but you'll appreciate it if you uh, leave it whole. I will plug it. We we just put up a good uh, we put up a good shank recipe uh, with a little short film uh, this week, which uh, which was really good. Use some of the meat eater spices too. Um, Dan, who's up in uh, in in Massachusetts area, he's been doing a lot of good short films for us with just recipe breakdowns and things like that. And he just did a uh, what what they call in the the great Northeast a grinder, which is like a sub sandwich. Um, yeah. <laughs> But uh, yeah, it looked great. Naturally, I didn't get to try it, but uh, he he raved about it, so I trust it for sure. And I'll I'll throw the link to that recipe in show notes in the in our show notes. So, um, well, I guess 
John, we're, we're our clock's ticking down here. So, what's a good way for people to connect with you if they wanna if they wanna talk more game or they wanna talk hunting or fishing or or any of the sort? For sure. So, um, best reached via Instagram at Wild Game Cook um, is what I'm on most. Um, I do have a Facebook page called Wild Game Creations. I will get your messages, but I don't often post on there because it's just another thing that, you know, that, uh, gets the traffic going, but, uh, Instagram is probably the best wild game cook. And my email link is on there too. So I do have a few recipes on paper that I've put, uh, my thoughts down and I'd be happy to share them with you. Um, and you could always write me private message or comment on a photo and I'll definitely get back to you. Nice. All right, well, uh, we'll do. We like to do a quick like around the room to see any last thoughts. So we'll start off calling. You got anything? No, I don't really have much. Just uh, it was really nice talking to you, John. Uh, I'm excited to try out some of the tips he gave me, and uh, gave our listeners about some of the recipes. And I think we feel a little bit more confident about branching out, especially with uh, me myself becoming a new wild game cook and a new hunter. And you know, it gives me a lot of a lot of hope for recipes that I might make in the future. Thanks. Nice. Yeah. No problem. Nice meeting you as well. Yeah. John, uh, you have any last thoughts for us? Um, I, I draw a lot of inspiration from Instagram myself as far as branching out. And there's a lot of great, um, wild game inspired accounts out there. And, you know, you can look at who I follow, you know, obviously harvesting nature. And there's many, many of the accounts I follow are wild game based and there's a strong community of wild game cooks out there, which is really cool to see. So, you know, everyone's got their own um, methods and, and how they cook and their own style. So find what you like and give it a shot. Absolutely. Um, I, I really appreciate you hopping on and uh, chatting with us. I, I really enjoyed uh, talking the, the, talking about all the topics tonight. And uh, it was good to, to reconnect and start chatting again. And uh, definitely hope to have you on the show again in the future. We can get some more conversation going later in the year and see how each other are doing on our hunting stuff. Uh, but also, too, uh, definitely go connect John over on Instagram. And uh, as always, thanks for listening. Um, head over to social media if you haven't already and check out Harvesting Nature, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, all normal accounts. And uh, whatever podcast platform you're listening to, go uh, subscribe and, and leave us a nice review. that has the stories to back it a life to be proud of it's a winchester life yeah baby six eight western oh, i'm old there baby right there tune in every tuesday at 7 p.m eastern on waypoint tv